HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today, we'll be talking about ways of eating. Based on years of observation, ethnographic fieldwork, and countless shared meals, mother and son, Barry White and Ben Wergaft, explore how foods reach our plates and how every bite is part of a complex web of social meaning and value. From the Venetian spice trade to the Colombian exchange, from Roman garum to Vietnamese nok cham, from the origins of agriculture to contemporary debates over culinary authenticity, they uncover new ways to understand food and the social rules that shape our meals. And that is the publisher, UC Press's description of the new book by the culinary anthropologist Mary Corky White and her son, historian Ben Wergaft. It's called Ways of Eating, Exploring Food Through History and Culture. And I'm very excited to have Corky here today, Mary, who's known as Corky. Um, I'm very excited to have her here today as my guest. Ben was supposed to be with us as well, but he's got some uh, technical issues with his computer. So um, his mother, Mary, is going, Corky, is going to fill in and do it all on her own, which I'm sure after all these years, Corky, you can handle that and with no problem. Corky is a professor of anthropology at Boston University. Her previous books include Coffee, Coffee Life, excuse me, in Japan, and Perfectly Japanese, Making Families in an Era of Upheaval. She received the Award of Order of the Rising Sun from the Japanese government for her work on Japan. Ben, her son, is a writer and historian. His previous books include Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh, and the Future of Food, and Thinking in Public, Strauss, Levinas, and Arendt. And we're sorry Ben can't be with us, Corky, but welcome to you. And I want to tell you that I thoroughly enjoyed this book. At first, as I mentioned before the show, I wasn't quite sure how to talk about it, or more precisely, which part of it to talk about. It's not a complete compendium, 
by any means of food or culinary history. And yet it gives the reader so much to think about and consider. How did you decide to write this book? And furthermore, how did you decide to write the book with Ben, your son? Thank you so much, Linda, for having me on the show. I'm so sorry Ben isn't here. Um, Technology eluded us this time. Um, How did we get started? Um, Well, I had been teaching food anthropology for a while and had um, been very dissatisfied with the works available for for teaching, but also just for a generally generally good read on food. I think um, I I hope it's a book that you can take to that you know padded window seat somewhere <laughs> and curl up with. I think it is. Um, we were first approached to write a general world history of food, all times and all places. But the limitations put on us to be completely inclusive in a very short volume, um, were, were, it was terribly frustrating. We did produce something, but then in the end, we decided not to do that. It, it, it trampled on you know both history and culture too much for our tastes. So um, we were encouraged by uh, the University of California Press, where we had both each separately published before. And uh, we were given uh, the option to do basically to make our choices. Um, It's not a full culinary cartography. (laughs) It's it doesn't treat everywhere in the same depth or every time in the same depth. But we've highlighted moments in uh, global history where um, something interesting could be said about food and society. So it's embedded in social history uh, and also in the kind of ethnographic approach that I have used and basically storytelling um, with with meanings not too far from the surface. So we did finally uh, get to do this. Now, why we did it together, well, Ben had uh, been working on his Meat Planet book, the book you mentioned about um, laboratory-created meat, which is not vegetable matter, but actual animal matter. Um, for some time, he'd been um, doing field work, really ethnographic field work, even though he's a historian, uh, in laboratories all over the world, talking to people about their ideas of the future of food. So yes, um, he'd been working in food. I'm fully in food. Right. And, uh, and so we thought, well, why not try this? And the wonder of it is, actually, I don't think we had a serious argument during the whole all the years we were working on this together. Um, wow, that's it's great! Kind of, kind of a wonder. Yeah. So, how did you parse out the time? I mean, certainly, you know, there are expertise between an anthropologist and historian. You know, there are, are different areas of expertise. Was there a particular way you parsed out the um, the topics? Or um, well, we we first decided uh, what the book should contain. And then we each kind of bid on chapters <laughs> uh, in, a, in the sense of, you know, oh, well, that fits what I've been talking about, or that fits what I've been thinking about, or I just read this wonderful thing. So it was 
kind of, you know, loosely organized around interest and experience who got what chapter. But the chapters had been pretty much decided before we parsed them out. Um, what, what we did, though, because we wanted a more or less unified voice, uh, is to have one of us draft one chapter, another another, but we'd pass all the chapters back and forth several times for editing and for smoothing out any dis- really glaring distinctions of, you know, tone or, you yeah, know. No, it's, it, it does. It comes out as one voice. It, it does. I'm, That's I'm, wonderful to hear. Um, our, but our inclusion of what we're calling vignettes that um, precede each chapter uh, was also a way of personalizing um, the, the subject matter by giving stories of actual encounters that each of us and sometimes both of us together have had with food all over the world. Mm-hmm. So they're very, they have a more kind of personal quality to them. And often they have the I voice rather than the we, if it was uh, a single person who uh, experienced something. Yeah. But I kind of love the vignettes. I mean, I think they tell uh, they give a sense of the feeling we bring to the book, the the personal attachment. Yeah, they do. It, it is, and it comes comes across. I mean, it's very much the book is, it, for our listeners is um, it is a good read, and yes, I think you can curl up with it, you know, in your in your comfy seat. It's, but it, you know, it's not a um, what can I say a textbook quality read where it might turn some people off. It's very much uh, kind of a book. Well, you mentioned it. You actually, both of you mentioned it and wrote it in the conclusion that it's more of a toolkit for the study of food. And it yeah. gives you all the things that you want to think about and find out more about and, and the turning points. And, you know, it's, it really does you know, come full circle and tie things together. You know, what you just said makes me think that maybe the title should have been Ways of Thinking About Food. Yeah, yeah. That, mm-hmm. that, that is what we had hoped for, um, to get people on their own to, you know, pursue, you know, you know, what is manioc or something and trace it to its roots, as right. it were. Yeah. Well, look, if, if someone who's going to read this book is just going to have to be close to their computer and look things up when they when they see them. I mean, that's, I hope they'd also be close to their kitchens. Yeah. Well, that, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's I mean, it's very much about how food was integral to human history and vice versa. I mean, how, you know, how the history of food was an integral part of of how we as humans are formed. I mean, it kind of takes both both parts how we eat and why we eat and 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 where we eat and when i mean it's it it has it all all combined i like that the anthropology part of it is very very loud and clear thank you for that because it's we don't often get good culinary history uh you know books and and tomes yeah one of the other things that we don't go into very much in the book but was definitely on both of our minds as we wrote it, is uh, the history of food studies itself, mm-hmm. because it's a fairly recent uh, 
uh, polite topic in his in historical studies and in academe in general. Um, it wasn't always so. No, it was not. I can attest to that. I was, yeah. can't tell you how many times I was told that no, that will that thesis is not going to be accepted. It's not academic enough. Uh, you know, but I yeah. I plowed along as well as and you. I am happy to say were a great defender of that as well. Well, you know, it took me a long time to get that aspect of my interest accredited uh, mm-hmm. at all. I mm-hmm. mean, it was when I was a uh, entering graduate school, I needed to earn a living. And the, you know, I didn't know how to type. And in those days, the alternative for a woman was, I don't know, uh, cleaning or um, cooking. And uh, so I took a job as a cook without having any experience whatsoever. I was completely foolhardy. And I was catering. Um, I was a caterer at a Harvard University Institute. It was called West European Studies because in those days the wall hadn't fallen. So it was only West Europe that would be represented. And um, they'd had lunches for 50 people every week and um, dinners for, I think there were two dinners per week for 25 and I was it, you know, didn't have a staff. It was just me. I never worked so hard, even on a dissertation. I never worked as hard for the PhD as I did as a caterer. cooking. (laughs) Oh my God. And so I, you know, I had to have a strategy Um, and the strategy I chose was um, not to cook anything people in the audience, the eaters, would be very familiar with because they would be able to compare it to something they knew uh-huh. in Western Europe, you know. So I've stayed away from France. Oh, my God, I've certainly stayed away from France. And I stayed away from um, some Italian food. And I stayed away from Germany. I, fa- I stayed away basically from Western Europe um, and cooked at what were then, you know, kind of not so well-known cuisines, uh, Latin American stuff that, and also uh, wherever I could, Middle Eastern, Asian, um, anything I could manage to do for 50 people or 25 or whatever, um, that would at least give me the freedom to do something without fear <laughs> a little bit without fear there's always fear I, I think I was always well see you were ahead of your time who was to know that that would become you know the, the big Asian cuisines and and yeah, well, fusion become been, so yeah. so wildly this, popular that's right and early 70s people were not so much eating other people's food yet it right. was just beginning. You ate your food or you ate the food that you knew and you didn't stray very far for example, into neighborhoods where there was a different sort of ethnic dominance for food that you didn't know. You you just didn't do that so much. Now, of course, everybody's right. doing it. And I think the other thing, I don't know, I, I guess I was rather nervy about it because I was cooking for people like Henry Kissinger and um, Jackie Onassis. And, uh, you know, there was always these people who were very, very sophisticated and cosmopolitan. And so, yeah, I was scared all the time. But one day, uh, without my knowing it, uh, a gentleman who who had been invited to the lunch came and took all of the dittoed, um, nobody will remember dittoing, copied 
copied recipes from the front desk that people had asked me to write out the recipes. And he called me from New York and he said, I'm so-and-so and I'm the president of Basic Books and I would like, I am publishing your cookbook. And I said, what? What cookbook? You know, this does not happen. I mean, this just does not happen. So indeed, they got some more recipes out of me and we put it out as a cookbook that would be used for you could do each recipe for 6, 12, 20, and 50 people. And it was new. Entertaining book, then. Entertaining cookbook, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And, and again, it was recipes that weren't quite mainstream. Um, and, you know, it was my, my lucky star was the fact that Julia Child lived about a block and a half from that center where I was cooking. And she rescued me any number of times. She was a very lovely, generous person. Mm -hmm. And I'd been introduced to her. And she said, just call whenever you have a problem. She did not realize that I actually would. And um, I don't know if you have time for a story that... Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, she was... She was really, really wonderful. She was very generous with her time and advice. I, I had the pleasure of knowing her as well. Oh, yes. yes. I'm so glad. Yeah, she um, – and I was in her kitchen a fair bit. But mm. but the, um, the, the, one, <laughs> the one I remember best because it was so dramatic was I was making a, a, a sort of stew soup or stoop or something for lunch for the 50 people. And it was a Ukrainian dish. It was a cabbage and pork stewish thing. Um, and, um, I, you know, I made it at home and trundled it over to the center in my Volkswagen bug, I guess in those days. And, um, put it on the stove to heat up and was in the dining room when the smell of burnt cabbage came wafting through. And it was just horrendous because anyone who's smelled burnt cabbage knows that it's just, it's, it's horrible. And um, I rushed to the kitchen, took the thing off the stove, put it on the floor and um, sat down and cried. I just was sobbing and somebody knowing that, I needed help. Somebody from the staff came in and said, here, here, t- take the phone, go, go, go get the phone and call her, you know, call her. So I did. And she always knew it was me because I was sobbing, you know, that invariably would be crying. You'd wait till that point before you called her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And, um, I, I spurted out that this thing had burned and what was I to do? And she said, well, first you take it out of the pot. And okay, yes, put it into other containers, terrines or whatever. And then you must um, send somebody over to the grocery store that was actually Julia Child's own grocery store. She had patronized them for years and so had I. Um, and get as much sour cream as you can buy, as much parsley and as many lemons. Lemons, yeah. And um, I think I think Linda, you're getting it. <laughs> so yeah, you 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 grate the lemon rind uh, into the dish, and you squeeze the lemon juice into it. But then you and that's and I said why why? And she you know she wanted me to stop asking questions, <laughs> and she said well it's to change um, 
the flavor profile because you're adding acid and it it sort of nullifies. And she's she was a food scientist. I mean, she really knew. And I said, and then she said, make sure they each have sour cream to put on this. Um, and I said, well, what does that do? And she said, well, fat coats the tongue and will put a barrier bef- between the tongue and the scorchiness um, of it. And then what do I do with the parsley? And she said, well, you sprinkle that on top and that's just to make it pretty, you know, <laughs> distract them. So then she said the best thing of all, she said, carry it into the dining room, make sure everyone is listening and then tell them, the dish of the day is smoked borscht. Oh. And, and that really, really showed her brilliance. I mean, she was super smart. What a anyway, so story. I, there, were, there were other moments of rescue, but that one's enough. Oh, that's a great story. That is that is terrific. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it's a good lesson for a lot of young cooks to learn is that those are the ways to rescue that type of uh, that type of mistake. Yes, oh, indeed. For sure. Yeah. Well, I always have lemons around. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, in this book, I, I guess you, you kind of lost out in the uh, debate with your son about whether to include recipes or not. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was pretty much our only battle and it was pretty minor because in the end, the press itself decided that recipes were, not needed for such a book. And and they were right, and he was right. (laughs) But I had this idea that um, connecting theory to practice was implied, and also that people would get a sense, they would almost be able to taste a food by reading a recipe. But um, it was, we did start out with recipes for each of the chapters, and I... um, I reached back for the ancient Rome, uh, the ancient empires chapter, where we talk about Rome and Persia and China, mm-hmm. um, to a time I got a recipe out of a, a catering experience of mine when I catered a Roman orgy um, for the classics department at Harvard. <laughs> and um, so, but you know, we had these recipes. Um, and I thought that, you know, the reality of cooking gives you a way of learning something. Um, you're thinking while you're cooking, or theoretically you're thinking, um, and that you think about where these ingredients came from, or you think, what about this technique? And what about people who use mortars and pestles instead of food processors? And mm-hmm. what, a, what? where did this recipe begin and... How is it now? How is it that I'm doing it now? Um, and um, what is a recipe? There's a whole study in food studies uh, called uh, recipe philosophy. And the philosophy of recipes, there's actually a book by that name. It's very good. Um, um, it gets very, very abstract. But what I was trying to do is go the other way and have the recipe bring us down to something very concrete. Well, you see, I think that that your stories, the vignettes, followed by um, you know the history and and um, the cultural development, I think that does it. And I think if somebody they makes them curious about the foods and the time, and I think that that 
I think that they will go into the kitchen and cook. Exactly um, what I was hoping. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Go to the kitchen because that's your other laboratory. Right. That's where, where right. you um, commit yourself to learning something. Yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? We are going to take a brief break. And when we come back, uh, I want to get a little information from you about some of the things you and Ben considered to put in the book to to bring us the history and bring us up to date to modern times. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of heritage radio network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009 and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams of new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Corky White, um, formerly known as Mary White, um, who with her son, Ben Wergaft, wrote Ways of Eating, Exploring Food Through History and Culture. And Corky, I wanted to ask you, uh, um, you and Ben had stated earlier in the book that there were a couple of major themes, even though, I mean, you'd have to you know, look hard to think of them as a theme, but obviously they are. And in the book, so I kind of use those as I was reading the book to look at it to see, ah, and then I forgot all about the themes and just, you know, read the book, but desire, power, and identity. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. um, I think what, I think power is, is very, very central. Um, um, But there's, there's one that more that ties everything together, I think, which is movement. Mm. Um, the idea of food on the move um, is is you know it's created. Some of the the movements of food are created by power, colonialism, for example, definitely uh, and wars and the Crusades. We have a section on the Crusades that um, was a, a very misbegotten kind of uh, political, more than religious move, um, but that moved food. Um, or the spice trade, uh, which is about power as well and seizing lands where the spices were. We have a long section on um, how the Portuguese and Dutch uh, created their empires of spices Um and uh, you know the Dutch would do things like, like um, um, make the ownership of maps of Southeast Asia and the waters there uh, illegal because they were, you know, security documents. They showed they took the Molucca Islands off the map so that nobody else could 
sail there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was very interesting the lengths to which uh, people went to uh, protect access to this very important and very expensive commodity. Desire, yes, desire has to do with um, power as well. I mean, there there is competition created by desire. Um, and of course, identity. And one of the things that I think we, you know, still leave open for discussion, but do focus on a little is the idea of the identity of a food and the identity of a people through what they might call their food. Um, and the ideas about authenticity, yes, um, which is a much, you know, beleaguered uh, idea. Um, a word that I'd rather they remove from the discussion of of food altogether, but absolutely. But there it is, and my students yeah. in food anthropology want you know they say things you know quite earnestly. Um, um, where can I get authentic Japanese food in Boston, for example? And I know what they mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I spend so much time in Japan, and I try try to find food that I like here and I'm spoiled. But it, it, that's a different question than uh, an idea of identity and ownership of a food. Um, so, yeah, I agree. Take that word out of the discussion. And yet it's there. Right. And, it's but, also, and understand and understand what they what they're striving for. I mean, that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. What you are interested in is why is the question raised? And who is raising it? And what is their need behind that question? All right. All right. Yeah. You know, you touched on uh, when you said there was another theme that ties it all together, and that's movement. And in in talking about that, you touched on a, actually a lot of the particular, some of the particular events that really created kind of a global shift, if you will, in, you know, in our, our whole food chain. And I guess how we we moved on to, you know, to developing food differently, even though we are, you know, you talk about everyone from all over the world. And you mentioned the the Venetian spice trade, but then the Colombian exchange came along. You mentioned colonialism and then the Colombian exchange, of course, right? You know, that took a lot of uh, thinking about because, you know, there's this, this wonderful um, older food writer named Alfred Crosby. And I think he's the one who coined, the phrase, the Colombian exchange. Mm. But what we were interested in is this, um, you know, the, really this story, the story. There's Columbus, <laughs> Cristoforo Colombo, and he's, you know, it's just a you know, kind of a fairy tale of his fantasy to find the Spice Islands by going west instead of east. And it, it, it ties right into the spice trade because that's what his voyage was all about. And the voyages of Magellan and uh, Vasco da Gama and all the other famous so-called explorers, they weren't exploring. They weren't trying to fill out the map, but they did. What they were looking for is the spices. So he, Columbus gets to uh, the so-called New World and He's so convinced that he's found the Maluka Islands, uh, you know, in Indonesia, that um, he starts taking the seeds and the bark off of trees and says, well, it's just not the right season. That's why they don't <laughs> smell quite right. And so this, but he did, I guess the one thing he did find was chilies. Um, and, uh, 
But it isn't, it isn't only about the story of Columbus. It's about this whole movement that the later conquistadores, the, the other, you know, people who were uh, trolling around in the new world uh, were doing. And they were the, they were, you know, a kind of colonials. And what they were doing was more um, sort of, I guess you could say, um, damaging kinds of exploration. And of course, part of the Colombian exchange is the the fact that the people coming from the so-called old world were also bringing terrible diseases, which decimated the new world populations. Mm -hmm. And they were also bringing things like coffee and tea and, and uh, things coming from the East and going West were notably very different. They weren't as much subsistence foods or staple foods as the ones that went East, like corn. Um, I mean, the story of corn is really fascinating. Um, the um, ideas, you know, things like tomatoes and chilies and what would Korean food be without those chilies right. uh, that came from the New World? Um, what would Ireland have been without the potato? Well, it might have been better off because... Yeah, well, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, Right, as it turns would, out, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and what would Italy be without the tomato? And um, well, I think one of the the things we discovered about um, about these thoughts about food movement is, um, you know, really the damaging effects as well as the positive, you know, uh, dietary enhancements. Um, the um, when I was in Korea, I went to a restaurant that was supposed to be pre-contact, pre contact, pre pre Colombian, um, and uh, they had no chilies at all, and nothing was reddish. Nothing had gochujang or any anything in it, um, but it it was it was delicious food. It just didn't resonate of Korean food to me, you know. Um, mm. So at the very end of the meal, a waiter brought me a small dish and he's very um, surreptitiously, he said, oh, I, I have to give you this. This is kimchi, kimchi with the chilies in it. And it was against the rules of the restaurant. <laughs> but he said, there is no meal without kimchi. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, it's interesting what, how, what we've come to expect and interpret and actually in modern day Korean society, obviously, as well, or that's or right. Chinese, for that matter. I mean, that's yeah. that was that was big. Yeah. Um, you know, I know you you mentioned um, restaurants and tasting foods of of other, let's say, ethnic foods or foods from other countries, and that in itself, um, restaurant development, immigration, and and you talk about dislocation and diaspora foods that was is a a big i'm not going to say movement or or uh, checkpoint in the change of food in history and how we eat and how we appreciate uh these other flavors that from we in america but let's say and vice versa some you know let's say somebody in italy liking you know uh, japanese food and I think travel, travel and immigration and all of this is, is so important in our food life. 
Don't you agree? That's right. And we haven't really appreciated the peoples who brought their food to us no. enough. You no. know, that's been uh, certainly, you know, Boston's waves of, of immigration. It's, you know, I teach the the peoples and their foods as they came here in layers, their layers. Um, and um, and the foods of diasporas are become, essentially become assimilated into our menus, our our, our sense of diet, our sense of who we are. So, um, you know, you, you they, they might in that process lose their original identity. Uh, you know, the coffee is a really good example because coffee is just so ordinary to us unless we're, you know, like me, fans of the highlight highlighted specialty coffees but it, it, it becomes normal or it becomes ordinary it becomes unmarked as exotic or the food of others and that's really an interesting process too I think I mean everybody I think uses tortillas to make tacos or maybe mm-hmm. maybe they don't or everybody uh, uses uh, and sugu, or what in Boston is called uh, gravy, which is Italian red sauce, um, it becomes so normal. Um, but we, along the way, along that process of normalization, it might lose some of the qualities that a person who knew it in its original would would have wanted. And that's there's an upside and a a kind of complicated downside. Also, in the industrialization of foods. Um, yes, that they become um, standardized. Yes, that's and that you know it has benefits and uh, harmful effects. Uh, the industrialization, so we have to yeah sort of shift um, it. You know, either way, and then and then of course that leads to the future of food. I mean, now we're in a very unstable uh, period about the future of food. Huh? Right. I, th- I think, um, and I do wish Ben were here to talk more about that. Um, wrote the book, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that that we, um, you know, all of our ideas about the future of food seem almost as if there is a singular path, but there isn't um, to a future that will be uh, universal. And the food is never a universal experience right. it and food now we have such huge gaps between haves and have nots or have nothings um, um, and um, the idea of uh, feeding the world um, has had a lot of experiments thrown at it you know um, the soylent experiment mm-hmm. the um, the ideas of um, uh, creating, you know, a pill that you just have to take and never bother eating again. Or, or you know, Ben's book, Meat Planet, uh, uh, it's really about people's thinking about the future of food. But it won't be, and I think he would definitely say this, the future of food is definitely not in these laboratories making uh, laboratory-created meat. Uh, that's a kind of dream scenario that, it's never going to be scaled up to uh, feed the world. So it's a very complicated picture. Amartya Sen, who's a very famous writer on um, scarcity and famine, and 
he says that the the real problem is not that it's not not enough food in the world. He says we have enough food. We just have very very poor distribution. That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, this has it's it's been wonderful to hear about these thoughts that went into the making of this book, and I encourage everyone to to take the chance to read this book because it's an eye opener, both in the past and kind of to form your ideas on the future. Again, it's ways of eating, exploring food through history and culture. It's kind of natural history and human history meet on the plate, right? That's, yeah. that's where it is. And uh, Mary Corky White, I thank you so much for your time. And I'm, I'm uh, thank Ben, your son, Ben Wergaft for me as well. And sorry, Ben, that you couldn't be here. We missed you, but we had a good time anyway. We (laughs) certainly did. Thank you so much, Linda. I really had fun. Well, and thank you for listening to another Taste of the Past. And remember that a Taste of the Past is part of Heritage Radio Network, and they bring you programming on all areas of food today, tomorrow, and yesterday. And I hope that you'll visit the website, heritageradionetwork.org. And consider joining or just donating by clicking the button in the upper right corner. Thanks again. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.